This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It is not a surprise to me that people are self-medicating with recreational cannabis to alleviate stress, to improve their mood. We do know that people are actually substituting cannabis for other drugs, whether they be alcohol or antidepressants. So in some ways, it's a safer choice for people who are going to use something to help them manage their way through these very dark times. Welcome to The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Busson, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. Today, we'll learn about NK7 in your lungs. We'll discuss how to overcome cooking fatigue. We'll find out about cannabis and the treatment of chronic pain. And lastly, we'll explore the mindful year in review. But first, a little bit of business. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their liquid greens chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy, enjoy the detox, enjoy the great taste. Purely natural, liquid greens. Joel Thuna is a master herbalist and general manager of Purely Natural. He strives to improve the quality of natural products in the market and passes along his knowledge of herbal remedies through lectures and articles. Joel is both a regular contributor to Tonic Magazine and this show. Welcome back. Happy New Year, etc., etc. How you doing? I am so looking forward to a wonderful 2021. <laughs> I think we all are. I think we're all in. That's a poker term. Oh, but, yeah. But I, I think things are looking up. I think there's a light at the end of the tunnel, and that's all positive. Last month on the show, we discussed vitamin K2, which is one of the more obscure vitamins. I think everybody knows about D and A and C and B yep. and E. And we're going to discuss a particular aspect of it today, but perhaps you can just sort of run through a little bit about what we covered last month. Last time we talked about K2, specifically the MK7, which is the most bioavailable form, and we discussed its role in removing calcium from places your body doesn't want it to go and putting it in places where your body does want it to go, namely your bones and teeth. And in doing so, how it plays a key, in fact, vital role in both bone health and in cardiovascular health by reducing the risk of heart disease and improving bone density and reducing the risk of osteoporosis all at the same time. Okay, today we're gonna focus on another aspect of MK7 because this particular, what is it, a nutrient? What would you call it? Oh, it's a vitamin. So MK7 also plays a role in helping us with our lung health, right? Yes, it does. Yes, it does, a rather key one. So let's talk about our lungs and the role that they play in our existence, our system. Sure. Well, as most people know, every cell in your body needs oxygen in order to live and survive. The air we breathe contains oxygen and a whole host of other gases. When you breathe in, your lungs expand and they take in and process air. Once in the lungs, oxygen is pulled from the air and moved into the bloodstream where it gets carried throughout your body. 
at each cell in your body, oxygen goes in and it's exchanged for waste and gas, and specifically waste gases, the big one being carbon dioxide. Your blood then carries the carbon dioxide to your lungs, and when you breathe out, your lungs contract and push the carbon dioxide out of your body. Essentially, that is respiration. Okay. And that's particularly important these days because, of course, COVID can impact our ability to get oxygen into our bloodstream, correct? Correct. COVID is primarily a respiratory illness attacking your respiratory system, so attacking your lungs. Okay. But there are other ways in which our lungs might be attacked through illness and aging. Can we sort of go through the impacts that the lungs may have over the course of our lives? Sure. Like most things that happen to us as we age, your lungs' abilities decline. It's a gradual process, but it does happen. In some of us, this makes breathing slightly more difficult progressively as we age until it becomes truly difficult. But beyond this natural decline, there are several ways your lungs get damaged that we can control. The most common damage occurs from smoking, vaping, and secondhand smoke. Smoke damages your airways and particularly the small air sacs called alveoli that expand and contract in your lungs. Because in order for your lungs to expand and contract, these little itty-bitty airways have to do that. This leads to lung diseases including COPD, which includes emphysema and chronic bronchitis. In these conditions, airflow is reduced due to inflammation, scarring, and the breakdown of both lung tissue and particularly the small airways, those alveoli, in the lungs. The same damage that smoke causes can also be as a result of long-term exposure to lung irritants, primarily chemicals and fires, and chronic bacterial infections. And what ends up happening with all of these is you essentially just, every time, every little bit, you just damage those air sacs and those little itty-bitty airways in the lungs, and every little bit adds up over time. Right. So, like, do we regenerate these cells, or is it kind of like when you damage them, you damage them? You can't regenerate them, but it's a slow process. Okay. So it's not like skin or other organs in our body, which may regenerate a little bit faster. Like, lung damage is serious because it's it's hard to reverse. Correct. Okay. So everybody has heard the term pneumonia, but how does it fit into this notion of, of lung damage? What's that about? Well, pneumonia is a very specific type of damage. Pneumonia is an infection that inflames the lung alveoli, which are those small sacs. The sacs end up filling up with fluids of various types or pus, reducing their ability to take in oxygen. And that just makes sense if you think about it. If something is filled with liquid, it can't contract properly. Right. This causes us to cough. It, it ends up having phlegmy or pus coughs, fever chills, and difficulty breathing. Pneumonia can be caused by a variety of organisms, including bacteria, viruses, and fungi. And what ends up happening is they get into the lungs, they take hold, and they just go rampant, and your lungs are suffering the whole time. Okay, now let's shift gears to COVID. How does COVID attack the lungs? COVID is truly insidious in how it affects your lungs. It attacks them not one way, but multiple ways. COVID can cause pneumonia, which causes the lungs to be filled with fluid and inflamed, leading to breathing difficulties. And while most people recover from regular pneumonia without any lasting lung damage, 
the pneumonia associated with COVID-19 is usually more severe. Even after the disease has passed, lung injury may result in breathing difficulties that can last a long time or even a lifetime, they theorize. Right now we don't know, but we theorize that. If the pneumonia does not resolve but actually worsens, more and more of the alveoli become filled with fluid leaking from blood vessels in the lungs. Eventually, severe shortness of breath sets in and leads to acute respiratory distress, which is a form of lung failure. These people, the ones who have the respiratory distress, are the ones who are unable to breathe on their own and require ventilators to survive. Now, people who survive respiratory distress and recover from COVID-19, the doctors think that they have lasting damage and scarring in their lungs that may last their entire lifetime. Yeah. And, and I think that's what's being missed. So there's a lot of people out there who are thinking, oh, this is a disease that only hits people who are infirmed, people who are older, pre-existing conditions, immunity issues. The problem is you can be very healthy, get COVID, and then have these long-lasting impacts that would change the quality of your life for the rest of your life, no matter how old you are. Correct. At any age and at any health level. That's the scariest part. Right. It truly is non-discriminatory. It can attack anyone. And my understanding is one of the key factors in determining whether or not you have COVID or not, aside from the, the swabs and the testing, is, is uh, reduced blood oxygen levels, right? Correct. And reduced lung capacity. Right. Because I note that Apple, with their new smartwatch, has a sort of a blood oxygen counter and a lot of people are sort of using that to monitor whether or not they may or may not have covid correct it's, it's not a foolproof no. method but it's it's an indicating method okay let's shift gears let's talk about healthy lungs and what they need in order to operate properly sure and if you look at healthy lungs you'll see that the the tissue the lung itself is soft supple and elastic with these properties, the lungs can expand and contract fully, enabling them to receive and push air, and with it oxygen and carbon dioxide, in and out, so we can breathe properly and get the most of every breath. There's a one special protein that enables tissues, lungs, arteries, skin, and connected tissues to remain soft, supple, and elastic. Normally when I say that, people jump in and go, I know, it's collagen. Guess what? It's not collagen. Nope. nope. <laughs> it's a tissue that's roughly a thousand times more flexible than collagen, and it's called elastin. Hmm. Good name. It is. And it's no coincidence that elastin sounds very much like elastic. I like to think of elastin fibers as mini elastics. They stretch and contract time and time and time and time and time again, enabling tissues that contain them to expand and contract and return to shape in perpetuity. Okay. Like many other body structures, unfortunately, elastin peaks when you're young and slowly degrades as you age. This is one of the reasons why skin sags as we age. Elastin has one other glaring flaw. It really likes calcium. And we all know that you need calcium to live. You need calcium. It's vital. Mm -hmm. But elastin will actually pull calcium from wherever it can get it i.e. all of its surrounding tissue. Unfortunately, what ends up happening is calcium will bind to the elastin, hardening it and reducing its elasticity. This is a process called elastin degradation. 
If enough calcium is present, the elastin becomes so degraded that it can no longer stretch and, in effect, becomes useless. This results in stiffening and hardening of the lungs, reducing their ability to expand and contract, and in turn, reducing your ability to breathe. Hmm. Now, when you combine elastin degradation with scarring, that is the net effect of lung disease. The two processes work together to slowly decrease lung capacity and, in, in effect, destroy lung tissues. But you have some good news for us, right? And that is the role of vitamin K2 and, in particular, the MK7 strands. Definitely. I always try to have good news. Yep. I don't want to be a downer. No, no, no. <laughs> vitamin K2 MK7 plays a vital role in calcium metabolism. We covered that last month. Yep. It activates a protein called matrix GLA protein, which is responsible for removing calcium from our arteries. It also activates another protein called osteocalcin. This is the protein responsible for putting calcium into bones and teeth. Together, these proteins take calcium away from where we don't want it and put it where we do. Luckily for us, vitamin K2 MK7 does the same thing in lung tissue. Mm. It removes the calcium from your lungs in order to deposit it into your bones and teeth. By removing the calcium from surrounding tissues, it leaves it unavailable for elastin. Essentially what happens is the elastin in your lungs is trying to pull calcium from the tissue of your lungs around it, and it doesn't find it, so it can't pull it. This has the net effect of preserving the elastin, enabling your lungs to remain soft, supple, and elastic, and expand and contract properly. Primarily because of this property, researchers have found that supplementing with vitamin K2 MK7 reduces your risk of multiple lung diseases, including COPD and emphysema, and here's the kicker, by a staggering 39%. Wow. It's a huge number. Even, even the researchers were shocked at how high that number was. This research, is it relatively current? Is this new research, or has this been around for a while? It was originally done about a decade, decade and a half ago, but it has since been corroborated repeatedly through multiple trials. So how much of the vitamin K2, MK7 do we need in order to get these happy effects? They've seen this effect in doses, daily doses, anywhere from between 60 to 120 micrograms a day. So it's still a really, really small amount. Okay. Now, when it comes to... K2 and COVID-19, there's, there's even more science behind it. And yes, of course, this science is relatively new. Yeah. First of all, I want to put it out there with the question, will vitamin K2 in NK7 or any other form prevent COVID-19 infection? And the answer is no, it will not do that. That's way too much to ask of anything. Yeah. But here's what, where it gets really cool. What the virus does is it causes blood clotting and degradation of elastin in the lungs. That's what COVID-19 does. Luckily for us, here's two of the key processes that in your body, vitamin K2, MK7 is involved in. Mm -hmm. What it does is it, first of all, as we discussed earlier, it reduces degradation of elastin, preserving lung health. What it also does is it activates three other proteins, C, S, and Z, which together work to regulate clotting and coagulation. So proper levels of vitamin K2MK7 are prime in your body to fight and weather the storm of COVID. 
In multiple studies, researchers looked at patients who have contracted COVID-19 and found a link between vitamin K2, MK7 deficiency and the worst coronavirus outcomes. Essentially, patients with lower daily intakes of K2, MK7 were more likely to have serious outcomes from the virus. They found that when fighting COVID, the body rapidly used up its K2, MK7 stores. So having larger stores to start with, they theorized could definitely help. Are you currently supplementing with the MK7? Oh, heck yeah. I take it every single day, and almost everyone I know, I have been preaching to them to take it daily. And the good news is, even if we're not looking at this, it does so many other good things for you that there's literally no downside. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing the information about MK7. Thank you very much. It's always my pleasure, and I just want to wish everyone a very happy 2021 and stay safe. Fantastic. That was Joel Thuna. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss how to beat cooking fatigue on The Tonic. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000-square-foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Need better sleep? Brought to you by Ultramedix Supreme. Adjustable bed, sleep apnea, arthritis, and back pain. I've had all of them, and I'm ready for relief. Find rest with the Supreme, the only adjustable bed that allows you to customize your back, leg, neck, and lumbar position with the push of a button. Receive a free adjustable base with the purchase of any mattress from Ultramatic this Boxing Week. Learn more at ultramatic.ca. Elevate your sleep. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. In addition to being a lawyer, my next guest has been writing for Tonic for many years. And since uh, 2015, she's written the very popular cookbook review column, My Wife Naomi. Hi, sweetheart. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. But I think there are some home cooks out there who are feeling fatigued, feel like they're running marathons, cooking all the time when perhaps they were used to ordering in or going out a lot more. And you're here to help them today, yeah? That's right. We're all in the same boat. Um, There's only so much takeout that you can have, assuming you want to and assuming it's available to you. You know, so most of us are just cooking more than we ever did. And, well, you know, there are projects. There's the banana cake trend and the sourdough baking, bread baking trend, which I'm guilty of. It's a grind. It's a grind, especially if you have kids or picky eaters. It's a lot of cooking when you're at home. And so, um, and there's no exact end in sight. So people need a bit of inspiration. And that's what we're going to try to do today. I guess I would just say, you know, while it is, there's a lot of negative things to say, like, there are a lot of opportunities right now, because less restaurant eating leads to healthier eating, you know, cooking more, learning new things. There are opportunities to sort of eat better, make ourselves feel better through what we eat, and uh, be less bored. So 
let's see what we can do. Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't enjoy cleaning up, but you mm-hmm. know, I, I find the process of cooking uh, relaxing. Uh, it's a creative outlet too, right? I mean, if you're trying something new, it, it's an opportunity to add a little flair to your day. So uh, yeah, let, let's get to it. Where do you want to start? So I would first mention that if you already have a favorite author or chef or blogger, you can follow them on Instagram or follow their blog. You can sign up for new recipes to be emailed to you every day. And that that helps because I know I do that. And sometimes I look at that and I say, yeah, yeah, that looks good. You know, I want to make that or something like that because otherwise you just get stuck in a rut. You know, well, we usually do this. You know, on Wednesday we have pasta, and so that that gets very boring. Well, I'm more of a traditionalist when it comes to like I like having the same things. If I like it, I like to eat more of it. Whereas you are more willing to experiment and try new things. So I get it. Yeah, but to be more specific about some ideas, one of the books that I want to talk about was Sheet Pan Chicken, which is hilarious to me. But yes. 50 recipes, simple and satisfying ways to cook dinner. Now, that seems sort of, you know, question whether that's necessary. But honestly, what do you cook more than anything else? What do we cook? You know, it's it's convenient. It's not expensive. It's inoffensive unless you're a vegetarian. So a lot of people cook a lot of chicken here in Canada. And having a number of chicken recipes all in one place that are reasonably straightforward to make but interesting is helpful. You know, it'll give you some inspiration. They're all sheet pan cooking so that everything is cooked on a tray in the oven. But some, you know, call for boneless chicken or whole chicken or bone-in chicken pieces. And the recipes are from all over. The cookbook was named one of the best cookbooks of the year by Chow Hound and the Kitchen and and by me. And she, the author, Kathy Irway is a James Beard Award winner, and what she did was gather recipes from a number of different people. So it's some of it is her recipes, and then she's also gotten recipes from other writers. So it's it's a good variety. So to give you an example, coriander crusted chicken with crispy chickpeas and pomegranate, chicken katsu with plum sauce, like a Japanese-inspired chicken fingers, miso marinated chicken with crispy Brussels sprouts, baby turnips, and apples, which we made. We discovered that we hate turnips, but that's okay, you know. So next time we make that, we won't make it with turnips. The chicken was incredibly flavorful. It It had very few ingredients, marinated overnight, and just basically miso and a couple other ingredients. I was very surprised, worried it would be bland, but it was not. So it really worked. Also, sumac chicken with butternut squash, red onion, and tahini yogurt. Like a lot of different cuisines that she's incorporated into this one book. Yeah, and I think what's good about the sheet pan pizza is like everybody has, you know, cookie sheets that they could use. I would recommend getting a real sheet pan, which has a little bit of a rim around the edge. It makes a difference. They're really inexpensive, even if you went to a kitchenware store and like with a little parchment paper underneath. It's a very inexpensive but very good way of cooking your foods. I think. Yes, we use sheet pans for a lot. Even a lot. if even if we're not making a sheet pan dinner, it's if you're roasting broccoli or cauliflower or something that you don't want to crowd the pieces, eggplant, the sheet pan is a good way to use it. And they were very inexpensive, as you say. Cool. What's next? Diala's Kitchen is a relatively new book by author Diala Canelo, who is a Canadian chef and blogger. She grew up in the Dominican Republic. She graduated from Le Cordon Bleu in Mexico City, and she traveled all over the world working as a flight attendant. And in the book, it's 
really interesting how she organized it. She's got pictures of different, you know, beautiful cities all over the world, and her recipes are inspired by her travel. So she's not saying it has to be super authentic. It's as though you or I went traveling, you know, tasted something that we really liked, and then tried to recreate it at home in a way that is reasonable for getting dinner on the table. Mm-hmm. She has a blog, too, and so you can look at her blog. But she's got definitely some Latin flavorings in a lot of recipes. You know, she's got this scrambled eggs with plantains on the side. There's recipes like that. But really, cuisines from all over, all uh, vegetarian and pescatarian recipes. And she covers breakfast, you know, lunch, dinner, dessert. She's a trained pastry chef, so her recipes look really good. It's pretty healthy. She uses whole grains, lots of vegetables, lots of fish, but lots of flavor. And we made some of the recipes and we were we impressed with them. So we made shrimp stew in coconut tomato sauce, which was inspired by Brazil, her travels to Brazil, which is simple, easy. I mean, it was shrimp, coconut milk, you know, onions, tomatoes, peppers. We were talking about how we might want to add different vegetables next time, but that's fine. You know, easy enough to do. Yeah, it wasn't a full meal. It was more of a main course. And I think you would either want to have a salad beside it, or as you said, add some vegetables into the mix. Yeah, we served it on rice as filling. Yeah, And it made plenty. Yeah. There was also roasted acorn squash with farro and pistachios, which was inspired by the vegetable movement started in San Francisco. Now, we used the wrong squash. Yeah, because, that, that was my fault because uh, I got the wrong squash. Well, I wasn't going to say that, but yeah. Well, that's all right. I, I'll take one for the team. Yeah. It's fine. It was a kabocha squash, which didn't really work in the same way, but it doesn't matter. I mean, it's a lesson on, okay, who cares? It didn't look as pretty, but we weren't serving it for company, and we still had roasted squash and the farro. And it was good. It was, I realized after the fact that it was a vegan dish, because she doesn't actually specifically say that, but it was very flavorful. It had mushrooms, peppers, you know, some herbs, lemon, farro, which is a, a chewy Italian grain made of spelt. It was really good. Yeah, and um, filling. I mean, it was a meal. That was a yeah, meal. Yeah, it was a meal. We made uh, an Israeli-inspired salmon, roasted salmon with sitar and a yogurt sauce, which we found on the blog. And, you know, we didn't make the side that she suggested, but it was also all these things are, like, relatively quick to make. I was kind of timing them, like, mm-hmm. can I start and finish this in an hour? And I could, you know, or less than an hour. Mm-hmm. No, it's a functional book. Mm-hmm. There are other ones, roasted cauliflower and romesco tostadas, really like romesco sauce, which is mm-hmm. Spanish, yep. made with tomatoes and peppers and nuts, roasted eggplant tacos, baked feta with spicy tomato sauce, manly beach, which is in Australia, salmon burgers. So lots of, lots of good stuff there. I really liked it. Okay, we have one other book that you wanted to mention today. Yeah, East, which I I mentioned last time I was on. This has got uh, 120 vegetarian and vegan recipes from Bangalore to Beijing. So a variety of Eastern cuisines are covered from, you know, Indian. The the author, whose name is Mira Sadha, is Indian. She lives in London. She's written a number of books. But she covers more than Indian cuisines. She also covers all kinds of Asian and South Asian cuisines. And they're all really straightforward recipes. So there's 
Brussels sprouts nazi goreng, which is a nazi goreng is a Indonesian rice dish, mm-hmm. um, which is a little complicated to make usually, but she simplifies it. So you've got shaved Brussels sprouts and rice and, you know, a few other ingredients. Got udon noodles with red cabbage and cauliflower, mm-hmm. which we made last night, we which we didn't love the noodles. Something happened with our noodles. They were mushy, but I liked that it was a combination of roast cauliflower and cabbage that I wouldn't necessarily have chosen. Yeah, and the veggies and, and, were good. Yep, the veggies were good. So, you know, something to work with there. Honey soy and ginger braised tofu, which we could serve with some rice and broccoli, and we're planning to do so this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, Napa cabbage okonomiyaki, which is a Japanese pancake. You know I love okonomiyaki. Yep. Yes, it's often served with fish, shrimp, bacon on top, but this is a vegetarian version for those people who don't eat meat or if you just want to take a break. Kimchi pancakes with a spinach salad, sweet potato momos, which are little dumplings. So a whole different kind of cuisine, and everything is very simple. So it's a good one to try if you're, you know, if you're just sick of the usual and you are looking for some inspiration. Well, fantastic. Uh, Thank you for coming on the show today and and letting us know about all these options to help spice up our cooking. Will you come again next month? Of course. Fantastic. That was Naomi Bussin. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. Jack Nathan Health offers Canadians convenient care with 74 multidisciplinary clinics located within Walmart stores. The largest ever Jack Nathan Health Medical Centre is now open in Vaughan, Ontario at 8300 Highway 27. The new 8300 square foot clinic offers integrated services for the whole family, including family medicine, physiotherapy and chiropractic, chronic pain management, massage and a registered dietitian. There's also an on-site Dynacare blood laboratory plus same-day referrals, walk-in appointments and a new annual health assessment option. Jack Nathan Health is a one-stop shop for proactive health management. For more information, visit jacknathanhealth.com. Fine and Associates are family lawyers who dedicate themselves to dealing with separation and divorce matters every day. They specialize in custody, access, child and spousal support, and division of family property. It's their mission to resolve all issues amicably. But, if necessary, they're prepared to go to court and fight strongly on your behalf. Fine and Associates family lawyers are committed to achieving the results that you deserve to help you move forward with your life. If you're going through a separation or divorce, call 416-650-1300 to speak to Lauren Fine for a free initial phone consultation. For more information, visit torontodivorcelaw.com. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. Since joining Canopy Growth in July of 2018, Dr. Mark Ware has helped establish the company's global medical division, Spectrum Therapeutics, and led the team responsible for supply and regulatory documentation, clinical development, medical affairs, and global product safety. As CMO, Dr. Ware advises on scientific and ethical aspects of Canopy Growth's global research efforts and is responsible for the company's pharmacovigilance safety program encompassing all research and development and commercial activities. He's advised the Canadian federal government on cannabis policies since 2001, and in 2016, he served as vice chair of the Federal Task Force on the Legalization and Regulation of Cannabis in Canada. Welcome to the show, doctor. How are you? Thank you, Jamie. I'm well. Thank 
you. My goodness, some of those things seem like so long ago. Yeah. When you reach a certain stage of your career, I mean, it all looks like you're on the other side of the mountain coming down, but you have some expertise that I think our listeners would be very happy to hear from. And, and today we're going to talk about medical cannabis treatment in the context of chronic pain, which affects so many Canadians. What's your perspective on the place of cannabis in that aspect? Well, that's where I really got my start with the whole cannabis field was was patients in my chronic pain clinic back in the late 1990s who were coming in saying that they were using cannabis. They were reporting these remarkable effects on, on pain, and we were struggling to, to find new ways to treat chronic pain. Uh, and I started to talk to my colleagues and say, well, why aren't we looking at cannabis more carefully? Isn't this something interesting? And uh, it was really there that I got my start as a clinical researcher looking at cannabis for pain. It's been a fascinating story ever since, but that's kind of how it all got started. And uh, I'm, I'm pleased to see some progress, but I think we still have a long way to go. And how much do we know about the effects of medical cannabis on pain? Well, we know that from a scientific standpoint, we know that the active compounds in the cannabis flower, the cannabinoids, THC and CBD are the ones everybody knows. Mm-hmm. There are you know, a large number of other compounds that appear to also play a role in modulating these effects. But we know that these two major compounds do act on specific pathways in the human brain, spinal cord and nervous system to affect different processes that are all involved in the whole pain experience. So it makes sense from a science standpoint that these compounds work where they should work if they're going to have an effect. We also know from patient experience that they tell us that it it helps modify the pain experience, it makes the pain less bothersome, tremendous rich experience for patients. Where we don't know is, is actually putting that together in formal big clinical trials, which of course is how the medical establishment typically approves new medications. Right. And so you have CBD and you have THC. Can you explain a little bit about how they work both separately and together? They're actually really amazing compounds. They're identical except for one tiny change in the structure. They're they're like these three-ring circus molecules, and there's one tiny break in THC that turns it into CBD, and that simple change makes the two molecules act in very different ways. THC binds to special receptors in the brain, which affect memory and pain and mood and so on, and that's sort of the psychoactive compound, if you like. Mm -hmm. CBD, by virtue of that simple change, doesn't seem to work on the same receptors, but instead it hits a huge range of other receptors, which we know are involved in anxiety, depression, inflammation, and so on. Very different profile of activity. But together, they seem to have this amazing synergy where, you know, one counteracts the effects of the other and vice versa. So it's an amazing opportunity that nature has given us for two molecules, very similar, but with very different and synergistic effects. How does cannabis compare versus other more common chronic pain treatments like opioids, for example? Well, two classic examples, plant-based compounds that have you know, a huge role in pain management. So morphine derived from the opium poppy, right. single agent, very powerful, binds to special opioid receptors and modulates the pain experience. Very similar in some ways to what the cannabinoids do, plant-derived compounds binding to special receptors, modulating pain. Very similar, very different side effect profile. Opioids in high doses can kill you. 
they stop you from breathing, they have tremendous addiction potential, tremendous withdrawal effects, whereas THC in particular does not seem to have the same level of toxicity or creates the same level of, of dependency and withdrawal. CBD has none of those effects. It's a non-psychoactive compound. It's sort of like a mild anti-inflammatory, if you like, in comparison. The other compound that I, I like to turn to is aspirin, which of course was extracted from willow bark. So another plant-derived compound, very different effects, more like CBD in that it affects sort of inflammatory pathways. So nature has given us some amazing compounds and uh, cannabis is, is the latest one of these. Just to circle back for a second on the research, I know because cannabis wasn't legal for so long, a lot of the research was sort of anecdotal and empirical. But are we getting to a stage now with the research where it is more clinical and that it's more traceable? We're getting there. I would be lying if I said that, you know, we were really rapidly advancing a state where we're going to see this. We've seen THC approved as a medicine for a couple of conditions, uh, weight loss in patients with HIV AIDS. Uh, We've seen it as an anti-nausea drug for patients on chemotherapy. We've seen THC approved for spasticity in patients with MS. So there you have appetite, nausea, pain already as an approved drug. So we've got there. The problem is is that they're so old, both THC and CBD, that they're not patentable molecules. And the pharmaceutical companies generally like compounds that they can own, patent, and intellectual property and protect. So they invest millions to do the research, and they can recuperate some of that investment. These drugs are relatively old, and, you know, they've sort of lost any patent protection. So that is a major barrier to investing huge amounts in new research. Okay, so we've narrowed our focus right now to medical cannabis. But of course, in Canada, as everybody knows, recreational cannabis has been legalized. And of course, with the pandemic and everybody sort of being isolated and perhaps reluctant to go see a doctor or a medical practitioner, I think there's a cohort of us Canadians who may be self-medicating. And yeah, it's possible. Who could say? What are your thoughts on that? What are the efficacies of that? Yeah, and no, it's clear that we're in a very stressful time and people are turning to all sorts of coping strategies. And cannabis was, interestingly enough, early in this whole experience, was declared an essential service right. for cannabis retail because yeah. because it was clear that people you know needed to have a safe supply. Listen, from the chronic pain perspective, it's been clear that patients with chronic pain don't just use cannabis as a pure pain control. They use it to help them sleep. They use it to help them cope with anxiety and stress. So there's a sort of broad spectrum of effects that cannabis seems to have on people with different pathologies. And anxiety, pain, and sleep are the big three things that people tend to use cannabis for. So it is not a surprise to me that people are self-medicating with recreational cannabis to alleviate stress, to improve their mood, to help them enjoy some of the things that they're doing, whether it's binge-watching Netflix or you know just going for a walk. Cannabis is something that people have found helps them just enjoy these kinds of activities. So it's clear that they're doing that now. Is there scientific data to prescribe for this? No. But we do know that cannabis is a lot safer than a lot of other drugs that people tend to use, alcohol being a classic example. Um, it's got a much better safety profile than you know using alcohol in this way. So we do know that people are actually substituting cannabis for other drugs, whether they be alcohol or antidepressants. So in some ways, it's a safer choice for people who are going to use something to help them manage their way through these these very dark times. 
I understand what you're saying. It's it's less harmful, I suppose, than self-medicating with something else. But I presume from a dosage perspective or, or just having a practitioner monitor the situation, it's probably not the best solution, is it? Well, I advise anybody who is thinking or using or interested in cannabis in any way that's using to help them manage a difficult problem, whether it's stress or anxiety or their mood or their pain or, or something else, to talk to their doctor. It needs to be done in a context where, because these drugs could interact with other medications, THC, CBD in particular, which is you know relatively safe from a psychoactive standpoint, is known to have some drug interactions with compounds. So people that are taking medications for other things, especially older people, need to be conscious of the dose they're using. And, and this can only really be managed if you are talking about it with a health professional. So it's clear that that conversation should be taking place. Unfortunately, a lot of doctors don't know much about this topic, so we have a bit of a gap there that we have to fill. Right. And you touched upon use not just for pain, but also for issues like insomnia or anxiety. So mm-hmm. so what are you seeing personally as COVID sort of runs through the population? Well, I'm certainly seeing a lot of anxiety and stress. There's this clear, and I do some shifts at the hospital, it's clear that people are worried and people should be worried about you know, the impact it's had on their daily lives. But people are also very resilient. They're finding ways to cope. They're finding ways to manage. And, and we've pivoted in many ways to a new way of living. I think it's really interesting to see that cannabis as a legal substance now uh, is offering you know, a way for people to find something. I, I think there are lots of healthy things that people can be doing from exercise to meditation. You know, substances and, and pharmacology are only one way through difficult times. But cannabis is offering some people a pathway to improving their lives. And I think we can only help by understanding, recognizing, and trying to make that as safe and uh, effective as possible. That sounds like good advice. We have time for one last question, and that is if somebody wanted more information about getting access to cannabis for treatment purposes, where should they look? If it's for treatment purposes, they should be talking to a clinic. If their own family doctor or specialist isn't able to help, there are cannabis clinics, some good ones, Apollo, um, Body Streams, cannabis companies, and, and full disclosure, we have some relationships at Canopy with some of these, but we know the doctors who work there are extremely competent in understanding not just how to evaluate patients and their likelihood of being a responder or, or a candidate for a cannabis therapy, but how to initiate slowly, safely, doing the right thing and making sure they're monitoring the patient's outcomes and then communicating that information back to their other doctors so it becomes part of the overall treatment plan. There are you know, good doctors out there, and certainly if people are interested, they can contact uh, us at uh, Spectrum Therapeutics or Canopy, and we can help them find doctors who can talk them through the process if they might be a candidate. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, Doctor. You're welcome, Jamie. Thanks for your interest and uh, thanks for shining a bit of a light on this issue for us. That was Dr. Mark Ware. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss the mindful year in review on The Tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. Hi, I'm Jamie Buston. I'm not only the host of the Tonic Talk Show and podcast, I'm also the publisher of Tonic Magazine. Tonic's a health and wellness publication distributed with the Globe and Mail to each and every home subscriber in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. 
and it can be found free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA. You can learn more about Tonic Magazine at tonictoronto.com. Hey, if you like the Tonic Talk Show, check out the new look of Tonic Magazine. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Tracy Segretti has an eclectic background in molecular biology, psychology, and nursing. She practices psychotherapy and yoga therapy and has over 20 years' experience in leading classes, workshops, and events. She believes that the tools of mindfulness pave the way for a deeply meaningful life at any stage. And you can find her at SograttiYoga.com and SograttiYoga on Facebook or Tracy Segretti on Instagram. Welcome back to the show. Happy New Year, my friend. Thank you so much. Happy New Year to you, Jamie. Thank you. So excited for this discussion. Yes, we're, we're going to do a little bit of introspective looking backwards, right? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. In a very precise, like a, we're going to do a, sort of like a surgeon yeah. um, in a mindful way. Okay, like a surgeon. Here we go. Yeah, like a surgeon. So why are we doing this? Why is self-reflection so important? Well, I mean, I think the first answer to that question is because it's so hard for us. Yeah. It's so sticky, right? When mm. we start to reflect back on the way that we've behaved in certain situations, it can feel like we want to sort of crawl out of our skin. Yeah. And so I think there's two reasons to kind of get comfortable with that. The first is that the more you do it, the less you're going to feel like you want to crawl out of your skin or the more comfortable you'll get with feeling that way. That's right? the positive spin, right? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but the second piece is that you'll start to really understand what's driving the behaviors mm-hmm. that you're executing. And, you know, I kind of came to this because the other day my husband and I had this conversation and I'm totally outing him on the radio. Good for um, you. Yeah. yeah, he doesn't know. So it'll be interesting to see what happens when he listens. But um, <laughs> You know, he made this comment because, so he's a physician and he's kind of moving into more of a leadership role. And he said, you know, babe, I, like, I was looking over my intentions for the last 10 years and I just, I keep having the same problem and I keep doing the same behavior over and over. Why am I doing that? And I was like, yeah, exactly. You can't get away from yourself. You have to examine the motivations for the behavior. Like, what are you getting out of it? Mm Even if what you're getting out of it is is sort of something that you would term as negative, you're still getting something, whether it's letting you avoid a specific state or, um, you know, not engage in something new that might be a little bit scary. Right. You know, it's funny because I was having a conversation with my wife the Mm -hmm. other day. Who I love. Mm -hmm. And I was sitting there and, and I was in my head, I was replaying an event that had occurred to me, which it happens all the time. I relive horrible experiences in my brain all the time at any given time. And I think, I think what you're saying here is this is an exercise that helps us avoid it, right? Like it's a controlled way of looking backwards without sort of reliving these negative experiences in a way that isn't helpful, but rather is helpful, right? Oh yeah. That's such a great discernment, Jamie. Yeah. Because you know what you're talking about, what you do there is something that we've actually talked about on the show before, but this example, is perfect is cognitive fusion right so when you're actually reliving an event you know it's simply not useful it's simply not useful because your nervous system reacts as if that event is happening yeah no i I can feel my tension build as i relive those experiences right there's no doubt about it yeah your body doesn't know any difference 
However, when you can give yourself a little bit of space so that you're looking at it rather than from it, and Mm -hmm. this is exactly the kind of self-reflection we're talking about, then you can start to see like, oh, that behavior came about because I have this belief system about, you know, what it means to take care of myself, or I have a belief system about what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman or in relationship. You can start to really examine where those concepts came from in your mind and then to maybe make different choices. Okay, so what else can go wrong other than reliving the horrible experiences? <laughs> well, I mean, the the biggest thing that I sort of observe with my clients is that we can go into a place of uh, judgment, shaming, yeah. berating, blaming ourselves, you know, just a total uh, self-flagellation. Mm-hmm. You know, so that, once again, is just simply not useful. It's not going to help in any way. And so we have to kind of entertain the idea of treating ourselves with unconditional positive regard. Mm. Right? And and what that looks like from the from the perspective of self-reflection is that in any given moment, depending on where you're at with your window of tolerance and, and all of the pressures you're managing in your life, you are genuinely doing the best that you can. Now that, you know, in the next moment the best that you can do might expand, it might grow. Mm-hmm. But in that particular moment, we have to recognize that given all the pressures, given all the inputs on the system, we're genuinely doing the best that we can. And so we have to extend that positive regard towards ourselves. And I, you know, I don't know about you, but I find that this is really hard for people. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, no. I'm, you know, I'm particularly hard on myself. So this, this is a big one for me. I know. And, you know, the the other thing that can sort of happen, like the reason that people avoid self-reflection is because either they know that they've, they've got this history of judging, shaming, or blaming, or the relationships they had, like the mentors in their lives, and this can sort of start out, you know, with your parents, mm-hmm. their way was to judge, shame, or blame, right? And mm-hmm. so, so people don't actually know how to interact with themselves with that unconditional positive regard. And, and so I guess what I want to say today is that it's just something you practice. You know, expecting yourself to be perfect at it or expecting that you're going to reflect in the right way. And I'm saying that with quotation marks is just, again, unrealistic. It's something that we have to really, really practice doing so that we can develop a loving and intimate relationship with ourselves. All right. So let's talk about the tools that enable us to do that. So mm-hmm. so let's talk about a curiosity inventory. What is it? Did you like that? I, I did. I want to know first. Yeah. <laughs> so excited. I was curious about your curiosity inventory. (laughs) Yeah. So, okay. So this is one of the key facets of mindfulness. And, you know, I was going over our past interviews and I thought, have we unpacked a curiosity inventory? And I didn't think we had. We had not. Yeah. So, you know, a curiosity inventory is really an attitude, right? Mm -hmm. And it's an approach that, okay, ideally, I want you to extend this approach to others, but you cannot do that unless you extend it towards yourself. So it's an attitude of openness, empathy, and genuine curiosity that looks at your behavior and says, oh, hmm, like with my husband, right? Mm -hmm. Like, hmm, I've been doing this behavior for 10 years. Like, what is that really about? Mm -hmm. You know, and and taking this seat where it's, there's no judgment in it. There's just this deep curiosity and yearning and willingness to really understand where it comes from. And it's really characterized by asking questions that are 
so kind and gentle, and yet, and this is the important part, resolute in the intention to see clearly. Mm-hmm. Right? So you're willing to get curious with yourself, but you're not going to back down either. Right. So it's not puffery. It's like, not puffery. Like it's it's hard hard questions because they're complicated or loaded, yeah. but not attaching any judgment to those questions, but rather trying to work through a result. Hmm? Exactly. Exactly. Oh. So can I give you one example? Sure. Because yeah. I, I think this is really important. So, you know, one of the things that I've noticed during the whole last, you know, almost year of the COVID pandemic is that self-care has been a really hot topic, right? Yep. So mm-hmm. it doesn't really matter where you look, it's everywhere. And when I think about my clientele and their demographics, which is, you know, people that are sort of 50 and up, mm-hmm. and their perceptions of self-care, I've got all of these people who want to engage in self-care, who are intelligent professionals who know what self-care looks like, and they, they know the benefits of it. However, there are all these roadblocks to them doing it. And when I start to explore with them, you know, well, what did, like, what did you see when you were growing up? You know, what I inevitably or invariably get is these stories about, well, you know, my parents were poor. It was during the Depression. We had no money. Like, they never sat down. They just worked and worked and worked and worked and worked, and we were berated if we weren't, you know, helping them work. Or my parents were a Holocaust survivor, you know, or survivors, Mm -hmm. and we had to, you know, we had to, like, not just survive. You had to, like, work constantly and succeed and be the best. And so if you look at that belief system that's so deeply entrenched inside you, like you're not you're not cognizant that you're acting it out to kind of do the behaviors that we're that we're suggesting like take a day off and do nothing, sit with your thoughts, right? Mm-hmm. It's the antithesis to what you've internalized about what it means to be in the world. That makes sense. Let's explore, because we only have a a short time left, Mm -hmm. how would you actually execute a curiosity inventory? Okay, so what I'm going to ask all the listeners to do is to keep it really simple, sit down and make out a list of categories. So family, friends, partner, purpose or work, self-development, and finances. Mm -hmm. Add or take away any categories that you're not into. And get really curious about those categories and what your behavior has been over the past year. No longer than that, though, because it's just it's too much. And write out the responses to the way that you've behaved versus what you want to experience in your life. But keep attending to the quality of curiosity, right? Mm-hmm. So keep sort of digging at what's underneath those behaviors, right? And what do you really want to achieve? And, and so then how do you have to change your belief systems to get there? Well, that sounds like fantastic advice. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. What do you want to talk about next time we come back? Next time, I want to progress this idea into intention setting so that we can move forward in a really conscious and mindful way. That is exciting. Thank you. That was Tracy Sograti. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Joel Thuna, Naomi Bussin, Dr. Mark Ware, and Tracy Sograti. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can follow us at The Tonic Talk Show on Instagram or Facebook. 
For great articles written by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic Magazine. The January-February issue is now available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to every home subscriber in Toronto west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our brand new website at tonictoronto.com. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at tonictoronto.com. Next week on the show, we'll discuss paying for our holiday excess sins, marriage contracts, keeping your mood up during trying times, and positive nutrition trends. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy new year. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.